All right, and good morning, Ridge Point Church. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. We need some energy this morning. We have a lot of stuff that's taking place in the message this morning. So I need some energy. I need some feedback. So feel free to get into it this morning. Man, we're super glad that you're here. Uh, we just have a lot going on in church right now. And, and I asked for some of you last week, I asked for everybody last week, if you were here last week, I asked for you to join me in praying as I had a unique opportunity to go down and to be able to speak uh, to some students that are a part of First Baptist Church of Naples' youth group. Uh, they're actually going to be meeting up at, for their camp up at Camp Geneva, which is about an hour and a half north of here. And so I just asked, man, would you partner with me and, and be able to pray for the students that God would show up in their life, interrupt their life, and change who they are. And I just want to give a brief report this morning on kind of what transpired this week as we uh, had camp week. And it was, it was really cool. First of all, they do a great job at First Baptist Naples. Kevin Taylor is the high school pastor. And, and we've been longtime friends. If you were here last year at this point, he actually brought his youth group here and his high school group here. And we passed out backpacks in the community and did just a really cool work. And they do stuff like that all, all the time. And this was their big camp week, and they do a lot of mission projects. And they have services in the morning and at night. So he asked me to come speak to his high school students. At the same time, that camp is going on at the same camp. The middle school uh, group has their camp going on, which is similar. Different speakers, different bands, but, but similar concepts all happening concurrently with each other. Uh, but I was given the unique privilege to speak to the high school students. And I was supposed to speak six times throughout the week. I was supposed to speak Monday night. Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, Wednesday night, Thursday morning, and Thursday night for the final service. And I'd kind of let Kevin know beforehand, uh, hey man, I was visiting my mom the week before and she really isn't doing well. Um, my dad expected at some point that week like my mom could really be gone. And so I said, Kevin, just give you a heads up if anything happens, I might need to leave. And he was ready, he was prepared for all of that. But we went into camp, we were excited, praying about God really show up and interrupt these kids' lives. And it was a really good start to camp. Monday night was really strong. Tuesday was good, Tuesday night was, was good, and, and we felt like, man, we're good, but there's a statement that sometimes good can be the enemy of great, and sometimes we can settle for what is good at the risk of, I don't want to take chances, and maybe great is out there, but I'll, I'll settle for good. And we all kind of had this sense on, on Tuesday night that everything's going really good at camp, like everything's, everything's good. Like if you describe it with one word, camp is really, really good, but that there was something that was kind of holding some of the students back. Everyone was really friendly and outgoing and courteous, but there was something just kind of holding the students back. And everyone, kind of the leaders, sensed it. There was a little bit of conversation about that Tuesday night. And then Wednesday happened, and Wednesday was probably one of the most emotional days I've, I've ever had. Uh, it began at 7 a.m. Wednesday morning with a phone call from my dad. And my dad's like, hey, JJ, I think you need to come home today. Like, I think, like, you guys start heading home now. And so I said, okay, Dad, what's going on? As I started to get ready, um, my family's kind of in and out, and Cameron's actually with me that morning. And so uh, I said, okay, we're getting ready. What, what's going on? He's like, oh, she just wasn't moving much last night. I, I think you need to come home. And so I said, okay. So I called Kevin and said, Kevin, I need to leave. Kevin came over, prayed with me, and, and we, we took off and left. I got into North Tampa. It's about a two-hour drive from almost in Ocala down into St. Pete. I got into North Tampa, and Dad calls, and he's like, so she's sitting up. She's doing a little bit better. <laughs> I'm like, Dad, you're killing me here. Like, was it, was it? And he's like, no, I, I still think you should come, though. So, so we, we finished the drive in St. Pete, and, and literally as I pull up, there's a hospice worker that's been helping out, just been tremendous to the family. Her name's Jean. And so I pull up out of the car, and Jean is just getting out of her car, and she said, J.J., what are you doing here so early? I said, well, Dad called, so I should probably come. And she kind of had this look like it might be a little bit pre, you know, a little bit early for that. But she said, okay, come on in. And we went, we met with Mom for a little bit. We talked to her, and she was starting to talk a little bit. By the middle of the day, she hadn't been eating a whole lot. I got her to eat a little bit of a Chick-fil-A French fry during the day. So, uh, so she was eating a little bit. So she's doing a little bit better than Dad thought at first. And so we hung out for a little bit. But then they said, no, go, go ahead and go back. And so I drove back in time to get there just before dinner. 
uh, Wednesday happened to be my birthday, so the rest of my family had, had joined me up there for dinner. And, and really, it was such a quick turnaround. I felt like I'd been in the car all day and visiting with the family. And, and there's all this kind of emotion. And then I'm like, I'm, I'm physically at this point exhausted. And, and so I'm like, man, I got to get geared up. I got to speak before a couple hundred kids. And I have to have energy tonight. I'm not sure how I'm going to get there. Well, camp was so busy because there's such a quick turnaround from middle school camp, which happened an hour and a half before high school camp, that there wasn't really time for all the leadership to meet. So most of the week was text messages flying back and forth saying, hey, here's what's going on in this service, here's the set, here's all these different things. And all this is kind of going on. And through these text messages of the events of that service, there begins almost like a prayer chain saying, man, we're praying for God to move tonight. And really there was this, this feeling like, man, there's, there's, there's a dam that's sitting in between where the students are and where they need to be. And we need to see God's Spirit move in their lives tonight. And so we just kind of started this prayer chain, just praying, man, saying, God, through this, we can't all meet together. So we're going to pray real quick before the service. But right now, let's pray for that to happen. And Wednesday night, we saw a beginning of a transition in their student ministry. Uh, you see, for the last couple of, of years, they've had a lot of strong senior leaders that have graduated. And so we started to see those younger seniors that are incoming start to lead. And, and, and students were responding to the message for the first time, really, on, on Wednesday night and, 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 and even more so into Thursday. But there was a cohesiveness that started to happen. That You saw the group Wednesday night, the group started to change. They started to buy in. They really started to, it was about the decisions, but not just about the decisions. But it's about the life change that happens when a group becomes united towards a common purpose. And so you started to see that Wednesday, Wednesday night, especially Thursday morning in that last service on Thursday night. Uh, but then the cool thing was right in the middle of that, to see the graciousness. Even though we want to see this breakthrough in these kids' lives, they were so gracious. Uh, sometimes, if you pay attention to the news reports and, and the media clipping, sometimes you hear a very bad report about students of this generation. And from my observation as a longtime youth pastor, and also from what I saw this past week, I want to let you guys know that's not the case. Uh, for a group of high school students, these were some of the most courteous students I've ever had a chance to be around. Uh, one of the students, when I drove back in on Wednesday, I hadn't really had a chance to talk to anybody. We got back in the car, I said, we're going to need to make it back and get ready. And so no one really knew what happened. Like, is mom still with us? Like, what, what's happening? And I pull up on campus, and, and one of the students, her name was Michaela. And Michaela was kind of standing over the side by a leader. And I could hear her kind of whispering, like, I want to say something, but I'm not sure what to do. And the leader's like, just go. And so this girl, Michaela, I believe she was a junior. And Michaela came walking over, and she came up. And, and it's a little bit intimidating to have the camp pastor there, not sure what to do. And she came up. She said, Pastor JJ, can I ask how your mom is? I said, oh, you know, she's recovered, she's doing a little bit better, and she's still with us and all that stuff. She's like, that's great. And, and she said, Pastor JJ, would you mind if I pray with you? And for a high school junior to come up to the pastor who's speaking that week, and, and I knew, like, she was nervous. When she started to pray, like, her voice was quivering, like, she was really, really nervous. But she went out of her way, and she was courteous, and that's what I kept experiencing over and over and over. So the service happened, the service was really powerful. After the service, they had this uh, one night where they had the, the students had like their talent show and different things they did. And then after that, they had like a late night run for all the seniors, their last night together before this dramatic night on Thursday night. So they had a late night run and they actually invited us to go on that. And it was just really cool. Like my morning started early in the morning at 7 a.m. It finished like probably 1 a.m. the next morning. This incredibly emotional journey. And through the way to see how God interacted with students' lives and literally began the metamorphosis in their life to really see them truly follow Jesus. By the next night, we had students making decisions to get saved, to get baptized. Some of them, through the mission track, decided this is what they want to do with their life and felt called into full-time ministry. So it was an incredibly powerful week. And there's two takeaways, even though we're 
separated by a couple hundred miles. There's two takeaways I started experiencing just saying, man, I could take this back to Ridgepoint Church, and it's our church's takeaway from this past week. Number one, this is a big deal. God is still moving in people's lives. Like, it was an incredibly powerful week, and to see the life change that was taking place amidst all the stuff that's happening in our world right now, it is so easy to get distracted and become fearful. God is still working, and he is absolutely in control. And the second thing, and almost as powerful for me, is that I saw an organization that did an incredible job of saying, we want to make sure we go out of our way to do the very best we can do in ministry. Everything they did was with excellence. Now, two things about that. Number one, Naples is a far cry from Polk County, Florida. I get that. Uh, we, we are not going to be confused with Naples at any time soon. And First Baptist Naples is gonna, always going to be a very different church than how Ridgepoint Church is. That being said, I think we can learn so much when we see churches that say, man, we want to do this with excellence. Everything they did was with excellence. In the coming weeks and months, as we start talking about the next year and the next school year and what that looks like for us, uh, we're saying, how can we begin to make those next steps? Not that we're going to be there next week, but then, man, if we stay consistent doing what we're doing and we raise the bar in so many different areas, and for us to do that, that's every one of us. If we raise the bar in different areas, then 20 years from now, their impact could be the same impact that we're having at that point. Uh, so we'll talk about that a lot in the, in the coming weeks as we geared up for the next year. But right now, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Genesis chapter 25. Today is going to be a very, very different message. Uh, if, if you've never been here before, you won't know this, but if you have, uh, a lot of times I, I think that as a teacher, there's two things we try to, to communicate and two things we try to transfer. Number one, we try to transfer information. I think any good teacher tries to transfer information. But I think especially as we encounter the living Word of God, what we're really trying to transfer more often than not is application. How does what I read here translate into my life? How, does, how, does, how do I leave here uh, changed and I ask the question, what does that matter? Most of the time when I speak, my goal is to transfer a little bit of information and a lot of application. Like, I feel like that's where the bread and butter is. That's what I want to focus on. Today's message is going to be unique and that we're transferring a lot more information than we do application. So we're going to read this incredible story. As we read this incredible story, there is going to be a lot of information. I'll explain why in a second. But there's going to be a lot of information. I'm going to try as much as I can to break that information up. But for us to get through this entire story... There's going to be a lot of information that we share. So it's going to take a little while, stick with it, and eventually we'll get to the application. But a lot of information, a little application, but the little application is really powerful, and I believe it's for every one of us. So the story we're getting into today, we're actually on week three. It's the fifth week we've been on the series, but really the third week of, of kind of the content of the series. And we've been looking at some key figures in, in the early part of, of our faith, some key leaders in the book of Genesis uh, that really became patriarchs for our faith. And it began a couple of weeks ago, about four weeks ago, with Noah. And the cool thing about Noah and Abraham that we eventually get to is their stories are pretty much defined by one specific story, one big story. If we talk about Noah, for everybody, for the youngest kid who comes back in our children's area, if we talk about Noah, there's one thing that comes to mind, Noah's Ark. If we talk, to, talk about Abraham, maybe not as... As well known, but Abraham is the, has this promise from God. He gives birth to, or his wife gives birth to Isaac, and the promise to Isaac that comes, and eventually him offering his son even as a sacrifice to God is, is the big story. What happens is Noah has three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and Shem gives birth to a line that eventually comes to Abraham. Abraham gives birth to Isaac, and then Isaac gives birth to two sons, 
Esau and Jacob. We'll get into their story, especially focusing on Jacob this morning. Now, the thing about Jacob is there's not really one story that immediately just jumps out and says, this is the story you have to tell about Jacob's life. His whole life is kind of that story. And it's kind of a story filled with family drama. In fact, when we get into the story, there's going to be some parts, if you're not familiar with Jacob's life, if you've never heard this story before, you're going to read this story. And you're going to say, wait, that's in the Bible? Like, it's going to sound at some points more like a Jerry Springer episode. I, I, you think I'm kidding. I'm, I'm not. It's going to sound more like Jerry Springer than the Bible. But as we read the story of, of Jacob and why today's going to be more story, and, and that is because the story is so diverse, so much stuff happens. And yet the overlining thread that's kind of weaved throughout this whole story is that even amidst all of the, the mess that he's making of his life and that other people make of his life, God is still moving. So here's what happens is Isaac... Um, gives birth, he has two sons, and, and they come out, and Esau is, oh, they're twins, Esau is the older son, and Jacob is, is the younger son, and of the two sons, because Esau is the older son, he is the one who's supposed to be given the birthright, his older son, there's so much that was given him as the eldest son, and so he comes out with the birthright being his, and, and he also is the outdoorsman, he loves to go outside and to hunt and prepare food for his father, and so because of that, even though we know, this is where family drama begins, Parents, you realize we're not supposed to play favorites with our children, correct? <laughs> Some people are like, no, my mom and dad, I don't want to know about all the stories. But, but we're not supposed to play favorites. And yet we see that Esau is favored by his, his father. Uh, he's outdoorsman. He hunts and he collects food for his father. So his dad says, I love that kid. He's awesome. Meanwhile, Jacob is kind of the quiet guy. He's the guy that lives in tents. And, and his mother favors Jacob. And so they grow up in this household where that starts to become obvious and there's a little bit of tension because of that. So we pick up the story. We're going to look at a lot of scripture this morning. We pick up the story in Genesis chapter 25, verse 29. In the beginning of the intrigue, it says this. Once when Jacob was, was cooking stew, they lived in tents or dwelling in tents. And so Jacob is back home. He's cooking stew. And Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. So Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. There's a little bit of, of an aside. But he comes in and says, I'm exhausted. Let me eat some stew. I'm really hungry. I'm tired. Can I have some stew to get, to get some strength back? Verse 31, Jacob said, okay, you want some of my stew? Sell me your birthright now. He says, you're the firstborn. You get some privileges because of that. But, but Esau, if you're really hungry, how about you sell me your birthright? I'll give you all the stew that you want. That seems pretty excessive to me. It's like, man, he was just a little bit hungry. And you're trying to take away the blessing and the birthright that comes as a firstborn. But wives, do you know that sometimes if your husband is sick, he can be a little bit melodramatic? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? The wife is like, like six, she's had babies, she's done all this, this punishment her body's put her through, and we get like a sniffle, and it's like the end of the world. Like, <laughs> I can't get out of bed, I'm so sick, and no one's ever been this sick before. Sometimes as men, we can be a little bit excessive with, with the stuff that we're dealing with. That's Esau here. Because Jacob comes and says, okay, if you're hungry, give me your birthright. And Esau said, I'm about to die. Like, I'm so hungry, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Like, if I don't live past tomorrow, my birthright's not going to mean anything. So yeah, Jacob, whatever you want. Jacob, realizing this is his moment, he says, swear to me now. Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. And thus Esau despised his birthright. You know, I think there is a lesson to be had here. 
There's so many times in our life that, that God says, man, I have this incredible blessing for you, and, and the, the future blessing that's going to come is going to be really powerful, but we sell out that future blessing for a moment of pleasure. Like literally for Esau, he, he came in, he was exhausted, he was hungry, and he says, what good is my birthright if I don't eat? I'm about to die. And he eats the stew, and he walks away, and he gives up what is rightfully his for the rest of his life for a, a bowl of stew that when he comes in tomorrow, he's going to be just as hungry tomorrow. And he's going to walk in and say, I'm starving, and now I have nothing with which to barter with. There's, I gave away something that was really important for something that brought temporary fulfillment in my life. But Esau does that, and so because of that, it says that he despises birthright. And we see this throughout the rest of the story. We're not going to look at Esau much. But the couple of times that he intersects with the story, he leaves bitter and making poor decisions because of previous poor decisions. Jacob's not always going to make the wisest decisions. But genuinely, when you read the whole story, and I wish we had time to read every bit of this. We're going to kind of skip through chapters to get through the the whole story today. But if we took time to read every individual part of the story, we see a person who was flawed, who made mistakes, and yet who, at the very heartbeat of who he was, wanted to honor God and ultimately wanted to please his family. So Jacob is, is given the birthright, and we fast forward a little bit. We're going to skip over now to Genesis chapter 27. And as we skip over to Genesis 27, what has transpired is, is that Jacob now has been given the birthright, but nobody knows it yet, and they haven't told anybody about this. And so we skip over to Genesis 27, and at this point in the story, Isaac, their father, is, is, is sick and he's about to die. Uh, he's weak, he's frail, he can't see very well. And so he calls his oldest son in, not realizing the birthright had been given away, he calls Esau and says, Esau, I'm about to die. I want to have one more good meal. This is why I've loved you so much as a son. Go out and get me a good meal. Bring it back. And when you come back, I'm going to give you the blessing that you've been longing for your whole life. Now, if Esau was a righteous person at this point, it would have been the great time to interrupt and say, Dad, I appreciate it, but I need to let you know I sold the birthright already to, to my brother. He doesn't do that, whether because of shame or because he still wants a birthright, we don't know. But he doesn't tell his father what he did, but instead he goes out to go hunt and to try to collect food for his father. At this point, though, there's more family drama that takes place. Because listening in on the conversation between the father and the son is mom over here on the side. And Rebecca's listening in, and who's Rebecca's favorite child? Jacob. So she hears what's going on, and she says, hold on a second. I know a way we can circumvent all of this. So she goes to get Jacob and says, Jacob, your dad's about to give away the birthright. I think we can trick dad, which, by the way, is a terrible thing for a wife to do to her husband. But I think that we can trick dad, and he can give the birthright to you and not to your brother. And Jacob right away says, well, hold on a second, Mom. We're, we're very different people. Like, dad's going to know the difference. For instance, my brother Esau, he's, he's very hairy, and, and I'm not. Like, dad's going to know. I know dad's not all with it anymore, but dad's going to know that I'm not my, my brother. Mom said, it's okay, I got this whole thing taken care of. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go prepare a really, really good meal for him. While we're preparing the meal and that's getting ready, we're going to go find your brother's best clothes and put your clothes on so you're going to have the smell of your brother on you. And then we're actually going to take the skin of goat and put the skin of goat on your skin so that you feel more hairy and put it on your neck so when your father gets close to you, he's going to think you're hairier than, than you are so that you are your brother, not yourself. And so they cook up this master plan, and, and to our amazement, the master plan works. We, we pick up in Genesis chapter 27, verse 27. Isaac had just told his son to come near him, and he said that he was Esau, not Jacob. 
And so it says in verse 27, so he came near. So Jacob comes near and he, and he kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments. And he blessed him and said, now earlier he said, you sound a whole lot like Jacob, but, but the look is Esau. It must be Esau, even though he sound like your brother. So he comes and he smells him and he feels him. And he says, okay, I must be wrong. This must actually be the older brother. It must actually be Esau. So it says this, and he begins this blessing. And I want to see why this is so powerful and why Esau had wanted this his whole life. And when he gave it away, he despised it. He said, see the smell of my son. His is the smell of a field the Lord has blessed. May God give, so this is Father now speaking to Jacob, not to Esau. May God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be Lord of your brothers, and may your mother's son bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. The last part of that blessing sounds somewhat similar to the blessing God gave to Abraham two generations before. You're going to be blessed, and everyone who blesses you is going to be blessed, and everyone who curses you is going to be cursed. But in the blessing, he says, you're going to be Lord of your brothers, and all of your mother's sons are going to bow down to you. You now are being given the blessings of the birthright. So Isaac gives that to his younger son. He gives it to Jacob, and Jacob exits scene left. As he exits scene left, coming in scene right is his older brother with a meal prepared for his father. He says, Dad, I'm here. And he says, who is this? He says, it's your son, Esau. He says, wait a minute, you were just here. And they start to figure out what happened. And Isaac basically says, sorry. Like, you missed out. I already gave the blessing away. God's still going to bless you. There's still some cool things going to happen. But you missed out on this big blessing that's recorded in Scripture because your brother, even though rightfully it had been given away, there's a little bit of deceit that happened, but your brother now has the blessing. And so once again, Esau leaves, and, and he's bitter, and he starts to make parents say, hey, here's, here's what we want you to do. Here's the type of person we want you to marry. And, and Esau is done with that, and he goes against his parents' wishes. It goes against God's wishes. And there ends up being tension for much of the rest of their life as brothers. Jacob comes. He says, I want to do things right. I want to marry the person that want me to marry or the type of person that I want to marry. And eventually, and this is where the story gets even more convoluted, we skip a little bit over to Genesis chapter 29. And what has happened at this point, we proceed a little bit further, and Jacob says, I want to do right, I want to honor God, I want to honor my parents. And so as that's happening, he meets a young lady who's qualified to be his wife, and he meets her, and he, he's love-struck, and, and he starts to work for what would eventually become his father-in-law. He starts working for him, and as he's working for him, he says, the father-in-law, uh, future father-in-law says, how can I pay you? And he says, well, I just want your daughter's hand in marriage. And Laban, the father-in-law, says, okay, work for me for seven years, and you can have my daughter's hand in marriage. And the Bible says that he was so love-struck that seven years flies by. Felt like it was nothing at all. He's so in love with Rachel. He says, I can't wait to marry Rachel. And for seven years he works to rightfully have her hand in marriage. And then we pick up in verse 21. It says, And Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. I've worked for seven years. My time is done. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place, and he made a feast. There's a big wedding feast. Now, the customs there were very different than they are today. But it says that in, here in verse 23, Jacob goes in saying, I'm supposed to marry Rachel. That's who I'm lo- in love with. That's who I'm love-struck with. But in the evening, father-in-law Laban, it says, he took his daughter Leah, not Rachel, and brought her to Jacob. And it must have been dark out. He must not have been realized what happened because he says that Jacob went in to her. 
As an aside, it will be important later. Laban gave a female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, so Jacob doesn't even realize the night of his wedding and the beginning of their relationship. But he wakes up the next morning. In the morning, behold, it was Leah. Surprise! You didn't marry who you thought you married. And so Jacob wakes up the next morning to this shock. Wait, this is, this is Leah. This wasn't Rachel. Made it very awkward from that point on at all the family reunions. Uh, so it says, Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Did I not serve you, serve you with you for Rachel? Why then did you deceive me? And Laban comes and says, well, here's the deal. She, she, Leah was the older one. She had to get married first before Rachel, so she had to be the first one married. So when it came time for marriage, she was the first to get married. Now, you can have Rachel as a wife, but you have to work seven more years, which he does. Now, I know culture's very different back then than it is today. I cannot imagine a scenario where two sisters can be married to the same guy and for it to work out well at all. But that's exactly what happens. As you, can imagine, as you can imagine, there's tension between those sisters. There's competition between those sisters. In particular, in particular, there's competition because they want to have kids. And, and, and what has happened is because, because he's so much enamored with Rachel, because Jacob's so enamored with Rachel, she's kind of being showed favoritism by her husband, and there's a competition that's taking place. And so it actually said in, in verse 31, because Leah was hated, God opened up her womb, and she began to have children first which produces even more tension. So verse 30, things get even more complicated. It says, When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. It's a little bit melodramatic. Give me kids or I'm going to die. And so, so Jacob gets mad. He gets angry at her and he says, Am I in the place of God? Uh, who has withheld you from the fruit of the womb? It's not my fault. I can't, I can't make you get pregnant. Like, it's not my fault. It's not happening. Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. Now, if you were here last week, a very similar story happened to his grandfather, to Abraham. And we said, listen, if we're giving marriage advice, we'd say, run, don't walk away from the situation. It's not a good place. This never ends up well. Well, somehow the story either didn't get translated to Isaac or Isaac didn't tell his kids the story. Because now this grandson, Jacob, faces the exact same scenario. And his wife says, I can't have kids. And so here's my servant. Here's Bilhah. Go in and, and have children with her. So verse 4 says, she gave her, uh, he gave him her servant, Bilhah, as a wife. And Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she shall call his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. So here's the story as it sits now. Jacob marries Leah first and he marries Rachel. Leah starts to have children Rachel can, and Rachel gets jealous. So Rachel says, here's my servant Bilhah. I want you to have a relationship with, with her so that we can have kids. At least through her, I'll have kids. And so Bilhah has two children, and Rachel is celebrating, said, finally, I've beat my sister. Finally, I have two kids. I was, already, I was already the favorite wife, and now I have two kids, and they're the last children being born, and so this is awesome. I finally won. This story gets worse. Leah who, by the way, had already had six kids with, with Jacob, 
saw that she had ceased bearing children. So she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. So there's all this jealousy going back and forth. So Leah has children. Uh, Rachel can't have children, so Rachel's servant Bill has his children. So then Leah gets jealous. Leah says, okay, here's my servant. And she goes, and she eventually has two children. And by the time all is said and done, at the end, miraculously, Rachel is able to have children, and she has two children. All of them boys, by the way. So here's what happened by the time all is said and done. is It appears from us as outsiders watching the story transpire that Jacob is making a mess. That's why I said this looks more like something you see in a Jerry Springer show than something you see in the Bible. Jacob has 12 sons with four different women. Six he has with Leah, two he has with Bilhah, two he has with Zilpah, and two he eventually has with Rachel. Of the two he has with Rachel, the first one is Joseph, who ends up becoming his favorite child, and we'll actually talk about him a little bit next week. But we see all this, and we're like, man, that is, that is just a mess. Like, I look at that, I'm like, wait a minute, when I read in the New Testament, when I read in Hebrews, this whole thing started with him being a patriarch of the faith. And I look at that, and I say, I don't know about you, but if there's someone in our church like this right now, we would shun him and probably kick him out of church for all the stuff that he's doing. And yet the Bible looks at him and says, man, that's, that's a patriarch of the faith. How does that happen? Here's the thing we see over and over, is that God takes our mess, and he makes it his message. Like for every one of us, whatever our past was, our past doesn't define us. In fact, one of the things we talk about over and over is that at Ridgepoint Church, one of, one of the, the pillars of what we do as a church is we never want anyone defined by their lowest moment. Because we've all had lowest moments. We've all had mistakes that we've made. And we're never going to find someone and judge someone because of those lowest moments. But realize that, man, in the midst of my lowest moment, there is grace upon grace for that moment. And God can take our mess and make it his message. And our desire in our life is to say, God, how can, I, how can the mess that I've made of my life become the very message that I start to trumpet to a world that needs to ha- know the hope that Jesus offers? One of the best examples I've ever seen of this was a family I met uh, when I was still a, a really, really a, a young teacher. I was teaching Bible at a school. And I met this family, just a remarkable family. Uh, and man, it seemed like, man, they were just on fire. The whole family was on fire for God. The wife taught at our school. The husband actually worked at a, at a local missionary home. They had two awesome daughters in our elementary school. And, and just it seemed like, man, everything they did was all about what God was about. And I started to meet them. I started to get to know their family a little bit and just kind of see. I'm like, man, these people just, they authentically love Jesus in, in the way that they live their testimony. And, and I began to think in, in my naive thinking that, man, they must have like been born out of the womb, like just been in love with Jesus and lived their whole life honoring Jesus. And then one day I started to talk to the mother. And I started to hear her story. And I just figured, man, as consistent as she was and as awesome personality as she was, as she had, that she must have always been that way. And she started to open up, and she started to authentically share a testimony that was nothing at all like I expected. See, I thought she went to church, and her family was all about church, and they always talked about what God was doing at their church, and, and man, they were just on fire, and I thought, it must have been a little bit how it always was. But then she recounted a story that as a teenager, she made a series of bad choices culminating with getting pregnant at a very young age. She didn't know what to do. She didn't know where to go. And so at a young age, she made a, a choice to have an abortion that really, really affected her for a long time. She battled that. She battled with the guilt and the pain associated with that, and she ultimately battled depression. 
On the other side, she found Jesus, and Jesus rescued her and redeemed her and gave her a passion. She says, man, I can know more than anybody what these girls are going through. And now she says, I volunteer at this local center to help counsel girls who've been through this. And you would know, like, seeing her on the outside, it looked like, man, everything was, was picture perfect, everything was sweet and just right. But deep down inside, her misery, her lowest moment, had become her ministry. And in our life right now, our lowest moment, the stuff that we deal with, in the midst of our devastation, that stuff that we think, man, this is a mess, how could God ever redeem this? That mess becomes God's message in our lives. So get back to the story of Jacob. I'm not going to lie, he's made a mess of it. He has 12 sons by six different women. But his mess was becoming God's message. You see, out of those 12 sons, we start to see the promise that was first given to his grandfather Abraham. Abraham was told by God that I'm going to give you a child. And through that child, the child of promise, you're going to eventually have descendants so numerable that they're going to outnumber the stars in the sky. And so through his son Isaac and eventually through Jacob, we start to see that promise being fulfilled. You see, some of the children that he has, some of these boys that he had, Benjamin and Gad and Levi, of those 12 sons, there's eventually 12 tribes of Israel. And each of those sons becomes the patriarch of those 12 tribes. His mess became God's message. Some of the tribes that are mentioned, we see first Benjamin who's patriarch of the tribe of Benjamin. It's through the tribe of Benjamin we eventually see King Saul and eventually see the, the Apostle Paul. We see his son Levi being patriarch of the tribe of Levi, who eventually through his tribe we see Moses and we see Aaron. And finally we see the son Judah, who's the patriarch of the tribe of Judah. And it's through the tribe of Judah that we see King David. We see the line that brings King Solomon. And we eventually see through that line of Judah that we see King Jesus himself. Why? Because God took the mess of a guy by the name of Jacob. He says, through the mess, I'm going to start to deliver my message. So he takes this. He takes this mess. And he says, I'm going to create a message out of that. And, and so he's given, the, he's given this prosperity. Things start to go well for him. And he, he eventually flees from his father-in-law who's doing some, some, some bad things, some unjust things. And he flees from his brother Esau he's still having conflict with. And he goes and he has this wrestling match with God. And during this wrestling match with God, I wish we had time to read all this. We just simply don't have time. He has a wrestling match with God. He says, God, I'm not going to leave until you bless me. And it's through that wrestling match that God eventually renames him for his purposes. You're no longer Jacob, and I'm, I'm not going to call you Israel. And we see him continue to progress through his life to the point, ending up in Genesis chapter 47, I think it is, uh, 48 and 49, that, that he comes and it's sort of the end of his life. In the midst of this, we actually encounter Joseph's story in Scripture. So we skip ahead to Genesis 48 and 49. We see him actually call towards the end of his life for Joseph and Joseph's sons to come. And Joseph brings his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And of the 12 tribes, the last two are Ephraim and Manasseh. And he says, I'm going to now bless these final two. And he actually adopts them as his own and says, these are now the 12 tribes, eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel as we know them. And so through all of that, that's why when we began this whole thing in Hebrews chapter 11, it says, by faith, Jacob... When dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. So at the very end, this whole thing comes full circle. He says, here's why in Hebrews 11, it says this is why this happened. was because God was taking the mess that was Jacob's life. And, and honestly, the sin that had really, really started to penetrate and affect his life in a major way. He's out of that mess, I'm going to make my message. And out of that, I'm eventually going to bring a line that ultimately culminates in Jesus who, who lived 
and died so that we can live. Now, interesting, as I look at the story and I, I read all of this, I say, you know, that's a really, really cool story. And I get that it's a cool story and God redeemed the story. But one of the things that I struggle with is how can God take a story like that where it seems like even though throughout the whole thing, I think genuinely Jacob had a heart to, to honor his parents to try to honor God. And yet we know he made a series of decisions that if you and I were to make those decisions, we'd say that was probably unwise. That's probably not something that I'd recommend that you do. He made those choices, and yet God redeemed those choices and said, I'm still going to use you, and you're still going to be a patriarch of the faith. So much so that we read this phrase throughout the Bible a couple of times in the New Testament. The book of Matthew, we read it, but also in the book of Acts. Real quick, let's read this. In Acts chapter 3, verse 13, this phrase that's uttered about God. It says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He was a true patriarch of the faith, even though he made some significant mistakes. He said, in my life, I want to honor God. In my life, I want to be blessed by God. And despite his mess, God delivered a message, ultimately, that would culminate in, in the birth of Jesus. And so we look at our choices right now, and we look at sometimes the mistakes that, that you and I make. And we think, well, how could God ever redeem this choice in my life? Like, I've made some major mistakes in my life. And sometimes we'll sit there at, 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 at 20 or 25 years old, we'll sit there at 30 and 35 years old and think, man, I've made so many mistakes. If I could just go back and undo some of those mistakes, then maybe God could use me in a powerful way, but I can't undo those mistakes, so I'm going to settle for what is good. And God said, what if I took those mistakes of your life and I redeemed those mistakes in such a way that your mess became my message and that your good became my great I believe that's genuinely possible right now. Despite what mistakes you and I might have made, that God can still love us, God can still care about us, and God can still use us. Let's pray to that end right now. Father, you're called in Scripture the God of Abraham, the God of his son Isaac, and the God of his son Jacob. And God, we see through their lineage of faith, people that weren't perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but God, people who have been blessed by you and are passionate about serving for you. God, I pray that that would be true of Ridgepoint Church right now. God, I pray if there are people this morning who would say, man, I thought because of, because of my sin, because of my mess, that I could never be loved by a holy God. God, I pray they'd realize that Jesus came here to earth to die, to take away the sting and the punishment of that sin and to give us hope, to give us eternity, and to give us literally the presence of, of you in our lives. God, I pray if there's anybody here this morning who doesn't know Jesus or has never called upon Jesus as their Savior, God, that today would be the day that that takes place, that we'd realize, man, our life is full of grace upon grace upon grace. And God, for others who maybe have made that decision in the past, but who think because of their mistakes, that their mistakes are going to hold them back, that they can never be used in any significant way for your kingdom. God, I pray that we'd use these stories, the stories of flawed individuals, to bring about hope in their life that, God, you can still use us in a powerful way, that you want to be able to do that in our lives, that we just simply surrender to what you have for us. God, give us strength to be obedient, to live past the messes of our life and realize what the message is. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.